Today's episode is brought to you guys live from Fireside app. Okay, not an advertisement or a sponsorship. This is a new platform that was created by Mark Cuban. I was invited to be an early content creator. And in my very first episode live on Fireside, I interviewed Emily Farnham. And Emily talks about male infertility and cystic fibrosis. This is a great birth story. There's a ton of learning and it's unedited. So thank you so much for kind of going with the flow. And if you guys are interested in listening to me record some of these podcast episodes live, then download the Fireside app, follow Birth Story Podcast, and you can literally join the live audience and I can bring you on stage. It's pretty cool. So some of the Birth Story Podcast episodes are going to continue to be recorded on Zoom, edited with a producer, all that kind of stuff. And some of them I'm going to be launching on the podcast, but I'm recording them live on Fireside. So today is Meet Emily Farnham and enjoy learning all about male infertility and cystic fibrosis. All right, let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Oh. Oh, I think that was the weight bot. I'm so excited for today's episode with you, Em. I'm excited too. Thank you so much for being here and joining on Fireside. And this will also broadcast out to the entire Versori podcast population. So a few things that I'm learning, I let them know. So, and Em, I think you follow me on social. So all of my audience knows I am six days post-op from my mommy makeover. I would like to give myself a round of applause. But this is the first time in my support compression bra that I have been sitting up in a chair day six post-surgery. So this is just the disclaimer. If anyone jumps on to watch this video, and most everyone will just be listening, I'm sure. But if you are watching this live, Emily, welcome to my closet (laughs) (laughs) and my beautiful uh, ensuite bathroom and the nightgown and chest compression that I've been in for six days while I wait to see the plastic surgeon tomorrow. So (laughs) anyway, um, maybe there's virtual backgrounds on here that I'm unaware of, but I I would love that. Hey, Mark Cuban, 
if you could add a virtual background for those of us that like to go to the plastic surgeon's office every now and then, I'm like, that would be great. Here we are. So um, thank you so much for joining the Birth Story podcast. And I keep calling you M because that's your name on social. So do you yes. prefer that I say Emily or that I just say M? M is perfect. Okay. Hey, M. Now... <laughs> I am excited to dig into your birth story and to talk about birth center birthing and also male infertility. So mm -hmm. this is a hot topic and yeah. not one that we talk about enough. Mm -hmm. The narrative that we hear as women and as birthing persons is it's our body of why we're not conceiving. Yeah. And, and even, even just from like, when you join like fertility groups or on Instagram, finding like people who are doing IVF, it's usually the woman's problem. So I've had a hard time finding like other women who are coming from my perspective as well. Yeah. Well, let's dig into it because I want to dispel that myth today and I want to talk about male infertility. And then I also want to talk about like our options of birthing in a birth center. So sound good? Can you can you start me at the beginning, Em? Sure. So tell us who you are. How old is your child whose birth we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. How did you meet your partner? All the things. Just let our audience know about you. Yeah. So me and my husband, we met, gosh, probably about six or seven years ago. Um, we've been married for two years. We were friends for a very long time before we finally decided to start dating. Um, so we got married two years ago. We knew from the very beginning that we would have to do IVF. Um, so we basically, as soon as we got married, we started the process of, um, getting a referral and finding out information on that and, um, started right away with seeing doctors and doing the tests and doing all things. Um, and then my daughter, whose name is McAllister, she okay. is 10 months old. McAllister, 10 months. Yeah. I love yeah. the name McAllister. Okay. You started this story with a very particular sentence that needs to be called out. We knew we would have to start with IVF. How did you know that? What was that about? So my husband has cystic fibrosis um, okay. and 99 point something percent of males who have CF are infertile. So they don't have the vas deferens, which is what brings the sperm out of the penis. So he makes sperm, but it doesn't come out. So um, we did have to start with them doing an exam to be sure. Um, but we were pretty certain that we would have to do IVF. Now, this is where I say I know very little about CF. Even though I used to be in medical device consulting and pharmaceutical consulting for pulmonary, CF wasn't the world I was in. I was in, I worked mm -hmm. in asthma and COPD. But so I kind of danced with some pulmonologists on CF. I had no idea the correlation or the connection with the vas deferens. So could you yeah. just share for those people that are listening right now that maybe have never heard of cystic fibrosis, could you just share a little bit? Bit about your husband's condition? Yeah, so it's a genetic disease. Um, so he has had it since he was born. Um, it mostly affects like his um, lungs. So he does breathing treatments and takes medications for those, but then it also affects a lot of digestive issues. So he has to take medicine to help him digest food as well. And he has to eat a very specific diet, very fatty, high calorie in order to keep his weight up and to make sure he's getting all the nutrients he can. 
Where were you when you met him? We met, we were both volunteering through an event at our church and we were introduced by a friend and we said, Hey, nice to meet you. And then didn't speak to each other for like six months after that. <laughs> Sounds about like most love stories. Yeah. <laughs> they get started. Hi, I like you. So I'm going to ignore you yeah, and be exactly. afraid to talk to you. <laughs> um, what? How did the conversation go when he shared with you that he had cystic fibrosis? So I had known he had it just because we had been friends and were in the same friend group for a while, but okay. I really didn't know anything about it. I had done a Google search when I found out he had it, which is like his worst nightmare um, that people do that before they ask him. So that's a good lesson. Dr. Google. Yeah. And so <laughs> I had known just what I had Googled, but I never had asked him about it. But then when we started discussing dating and um, moving forward in our relationship, he had actually asked me to listen to a podcast about dating people with CF. And one of the things that they talked about in the podcast was male infertility. And so after I listened to the podcast, we sat down and had a conversation about it, which was very good to get it out in the open before we even were dating. This is, this is big stuff. Yeah. Like when some people are like talking about, how do you like this? Or how do you like yeah. that? You're like, Hey, how about we talk about our fertility yeah. journey <laughs> and, you know, genetic components of this. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting for me to hear from you though, is that like, there was sperm, just not yes. a connection. So yes. the harvesting of the sperm, which we'll get to, I'm assuming, is a big yeah. part of your journey. Yes. Did yes. you have, as a young adult, did you have any idea about your own fertility? Not really. I mean, I, I had endometriosis and had been on birth control from the time I was really young because of like painful periods and bleeding. But I... And they had always said like, oh, you may have trouble getting pregnant because of endometriosis, but I'd never really thought anything about fertility and IVF and IUI and all those things. Like it had never even crossed my mind as something I would ever have to possibly do. Well, I'm going to interject right there because I interviewed a CEO on this podcast that I adored, Afton Veckery, and it's a, she's the CEO of Modern Fertility. And she, her, the whole purpose of this platform is to get women like you, but in their teens, like when you're diagnosed mm -hmm. with endometriosis and you're going on birth control, send a couple vial, vials of blood away and test your fertility so that yeah. you go into your 20s and 30s and sometimes even your 40s. I'm not going to dare say 50, but with your fertility <laughs> and you sort of know what you're, what you're looking at. It's something I really want to empower women and birthing persons to start asking about your fertility. Mm -hmm. Don't just assume because it's really yeah. hard when we're 24 and we're trying to have a baby for the first time or 34 or 42. And we find out that we've had these problems the whole time and never mm -hmm. knew about it. Yeah. So so you weren't sure. You knew you had endometriosis. You didn't know what your mm -hmm. own journey was going to look like. No. But you knew you were going to have a fertility journey. So yeah. did you decide to start a family before or after marriage? After. After. Okay. So you guys get married, start a life mm -hmm. together. When did you start having the conversation about IVF? So we, so my husband, every three months has to go to his CF clinic, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. And he goes there um, and sees his provider, a social worker, 
a nutritionist every three months. They do his like lung function tests. And while we were there, I had been going with him. So this was the first time we had gone after we'd been married. We'd only been married for three months. And the doctor actually asked us, have you guys talked about having any kids or starting a family? Like, where do you stand on that? And we told him that we had talked about it. And he recommended we just meet um, with the fertility clinic to just get information and to know what the process was, what the timeline was and all of that so that we were prepared when we were ready. So we made an appointment and we had talked before then, but we were pretty decided that we would rather start as soon as possible because we both knew we wanted kids, but also because of age and age is a huge factor with IVF and we just wanted to be in the best position we possibly could be in. How old were you? I was 28 when okay. I did my um, egg retrieval. Okay. How old was your husband? He's 30. Okay. He's 30 now or he was 30 He was then? 30. I'm sorry. He was 30. He was 30. So 28 and 30. Mm-hmm. So for most 28 and 30-year-olds, not thinking a lot about fertility and these really hard conversations and decisions. Right. What what are the chances of like we're going to get into the IVF process in a second, but like what are the chances that your embryos using your husband's sperm that's harvested would be also positive for or a carrier of CF? So we did genetic testing beforehand to find out because if um, I don't know how much you know about CF, but with people with CF they cannot be in proximity to each other. There's actually a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Six Feet Apart about a love story between two teenagers who have CF and they're not allowed. You can't you can't be close to each other because people with CF have different, they're called bugs in their lungs. And if you transfer them, it can make the other person very sick. So if we were- I have, have a baby, never heard of this. Yeah. The movie is called Six one. Feet Apart. Yes. And this is like before mm-hmm. coronavirus, six feet apart, yeah. like, yes. like, yes. A, like totally different six feet apart. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. now I know what I'm watching while I'm <laughs> laying around in my compression bra for the rest yeah. of the day, waiting for my boobs to heal. Wow. <laughs> I mean, is it, I'm yeah. going to ball my face off, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really good. And it's definitely like a teen movie. But also, we brought friends with us um, to go see it like on opening night. And it started a really good conversation with our friends about CF and what it means and it was really really cool and it was fun to see like CF represented in the media like that because it's usually just like not the same it's like medical tv shows and different things like that so it was really cool um but if we had a baby who had CF it could be potentially devastating that Wesley or my husband Wesley and the baby I mean they would be able to interact but it would be hard it would make things a lot more difficult so I did genetic testing to see if I was a carrier and I was not. So we didn't have to worry about that. You need two people who are a carrier. And if they're both carriers, you have a one in three chance. Okay. So the fact that you are not a carrier of CF means 100% scientifically, Mm -hmm. without a doubt, you were not going to have a child with CF. Yes. Okay. And that it would be safe for your future child and your partner to be Mm -hmm. six feet in closeness yeah. and for <laughs> love and together. kisses and snuggles and hugs and affection and all of those yeah. things. Golly, that just sounds very stressful. I am so thankful for technology yeah. with um with these fertility journeys. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's dig even deeper. Let's keep going. Okay. 
So you did the genetic testing mm-hmm. and you kind of alluded to, to the embryos and such like that, but could you just talk a little bit about the IVF process? Sure. So it started off with, um, you know, meeting with the doctor and just having a consultation to talk about plans and best course of action, all that stuff. We did the genetic testing. Um, we only did um, CF testing um, because we wanted to have as little hand in it as possible, but there's a lot of other tests people can do, especially if they have family history of things. So um, it was just a decision we personally made that we just wanted to test for CF. You okay. can test, um, yeah, for everything. So we did the CF testing, and then from there, we they did a saline ultrasound, which is like a mock transfer. So they check your fallopian tubes, check your uterus, make sure there's um, no blockages, cysts, things like that. If there is any cysts, they'll either remove them or put you on different medications. But thankfully, I everything was clear. Were you um, under general anesthesia for that procedure? No. You were awake? You take some ibuprofen before. and Yeah. It, it feels... <sighs> I personally think it felt like a pap smear. Like it didn't, but I've heard other people say that. Amazing. Pap smears feel amazing. Yeah. (laughs) But we also started this whole process. We had our last meeting before starting me starting my injections, my stimulants the week before COVID shut down. And so we were at our appointment and they were like, we can't guarantee you're going to be able to start IVF next week. And then we got a call three days later that we were not starting. So it pushed us back a couple of months, which was so devastating (laughs) in the moment. Now I'm very, very thankful for McAllister and our life, but it was very, very hard to be told you can't have a baby. Can't try. Yeah. Yeah. And that was really hard to like wrap my head around that. And then all of the like, yeah, it was just very hard. So, but then after a few months, we started again the process again. So Wesley had his sperm retrieval procedure. Um, he was awake for that, but they did give him um, like painkillers and some medicine to make him kind of like out of it. Um, but we, I had to drop him off and wait in the car because of COVID while he got that done. Um, and then they went All in. All alone. Yeah. Oh, no. And they went in with um, basically a long needle and pulled tried to pull out sperm and then they ended up having to take a little piece of his testes to get the sperm because they couldn't get any with the needle it was kind of trapped in there yeah and this right now people are super confused right now i promise you sorry no it's okay because like i'm a doula i get this right yeah people are very unconfused on the fact that semen and seminal fluid or ejaculate are different things Yes. And that they yeah. mix and yeah. combine. And yeah. so is there any more that you could share just to help people understand like where the sperm is located versus like the ejaculate? Is that something that you want to talk about? Like I'm tracking with you because this makes sense to me. But what we need our audience to understand mm-hmm. is that semen and ejaculate fluid are two different yeah. things. So the semen is I'm not. I'm not sure that I, I know 100% medically, so correct me if I'm wrong. But it is stored in the testes. Yep. And there is a tube called the vas deferens that takes the semen out, and it mixes with the seminal fluid, and then that comes out during ejaculation. So he Bravo! Have- it's like a medical degree, Em. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> so he does not have the tube that transports the semen 
So it's all just sitting there. But because of that, there's could be some like um, motility issues where mm-hmm. it's not um, doesn't work as well as some other semen or sperm because um, it's just sitting there. So that was the issue that they faced when they tried to pull it out. Um, they it wasn't good quality enough sperm, so they had to cut a piece of his testes off to take it from that, which ended up being good quality. So it was good. Okay, now for all of those IVF warriors out there, often you can achieve multiple children with one harvest. Yes. Right? So were they able to um, kind of get enough sperm from your husband to to have multiple embryos for the future? Yes. Yeah, so we we have tubes of sperm. And we have embryos that are already made. So if we needed to do another, we needed to make any more embryos, we could use that. So he wouldn't have to have the procedure again. Okay. Because that's a big part of IVF that people don't understand is that like we have to harvest eggs and we have to harvest sperm to make embryos. And so a lot of times, often, especially for the female or the assigned sex at birth female birthing person, it's you have to do this m- multiple times, this egg harvesting mm-hmm. and often yes. for the sperm also. So you guys were able to get a couple vials of sperm so that you could yes. do this more than yeah. one time. How about on your side? How many eggs were they able to retrieve in your egg retrieval? So we had we had about 16 eggs retrieved. That's um, a lot, we, girl. Yeah. And then Jeez. we had four make it to embryo. Okay. So once they were fertilized, we have we had four. So we still have three frozen. That's, I mean, that's a high success rate. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Every now and then I'll hear a story of like where somebody gets eight or 10 and you're like, whoa. I mean, and then most of the stories that I hear, especially as a birth doula for many clients on fertility journeys is that there's just one. Yeah. Or none. Yeah. So, or. Yeah. How many children would you like to have? (laughs) I we go back and before I ever had a baby, I was like, I want like 10 kids. And now that I've had one, I'm like, I don't know if we're going to do it again. So that's. It's funny just, how it changes things, isn't yeah, it? You yeah. lose one night of sleep and you're like, done. <laughs> fuck it. No. Shoot. I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on fireside. <laughs> well, maybe I just we'll won't out, say I any more cuss words from here on out and they'll let me know if that is. <laughs> Shoot, I have to censor myself. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble on my first yeah. episode. Okay, anyway, if y'all heard that, I'm so sorry. Yeah. We'll <laughs> pretend I didn't do that, and I'm going to make this PG for the rest of the time. Yeah. Um, that was under general anesthesia, though. However, I do know that your egg retrieval. Yes, my egg retrieval was under anesthesia. Okay. And again, my because of COVID, he dropped me off, waited in the car picked me up afterwards and same for the transfer so romantic and they put the I know I was like you're not even in the room with me as I'm they're putting our baby inside of me (laughs) it's kind of crazy hopefully you guys went home and had sex (laughs) did something at least kissed or something I don't know ate chocolate did something (laughs) in the realm of romance I don't know (laughs) to memorialize the moment um so you had four you transferred just one Yes. 
Okay, because some people will transfer two, go for twins. Yes. So our clinic only recommends one unless you have history of, um, depends on age and then history of failed transfers. They might let you do two. Um, But based on my age and it being our first time, they wouldn't have allowed us to do one more than one. Okay. I'll be honest. Mine are 15 months apart, M. And I was, you know, I'm in my 40s with a kindergartner, so I was much older parent going into this, much older than you going into this. And if they would have said two, I would have been like, yeah, mm-hmm, done, mm-hmm. two and one, but only one pregnancy, just get through the hard two years, move yeah. on with my life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see like that would be a, a hard decision, things you have to think through that yeah. the average person at the grocery store might not be thinking about in their accidental pregnancy, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah, pretty frustrating. So these three remaining embryos are frozen they are, and then yeah. you can decide what you want to do with your family later. Yeah. Okay. And we just have to pay a uh, rent for the sperm and the embryos until we decide. <laughs> I mean, I swear to you, this is the type of business I'm going into next. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to buy a facility that stores things. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where the money is. I'm telling you, storing eggs and sperm, cord blood, Mm -hmm. like the tissue, the placental tissue. I mean, this is like money makers. I think this app is partly owned and run by Mark Cuban. And I'm like, hey, hint, hint, buddy, (laughs) there is big money in fertility and in storage of Mm -hmm. things like placenta tissue, cord blood, sperm and eggs. Um, it's kind of like ham and eggs, but sperm and eggs. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you do this transfer. Mm -hmm. It's successful the first time. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was incredible. Now the medicines make you think you're pregnant, even if you don't know if you're pregnant. So if you were, from what I understand from my clients with IVF, if you were to pee on a stick the next day, it would tell you that you're pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. They don't recommend, well, they don't recommend taking a test at home at all um, because you can have a false positive, you can have a false negative and it can show up positive, but really it's a chemical pregnancy. So they, they tell you not to do it at home, but I don't know many people that don't do it at home. But I'm assuming that when they do the transfer, you get to see an embryo inside your uterus. That yeah. feels pregnant to me. Yes. Yeah. And you're seeing like they, I mean, it's an all, they're doing an ultrasound at the same time. So you're watching it go in and it is incredible. That see. is really incredible. Yeah. So the definition though now for, for cases of IVF are we have um, an embryo that then implants to the uter- to the uterine lining and begins mm-hmm. to grow with a fetal yeah. pole and all of those things. So mm-hmm. how soon after an embryo, sperm and egg connected, are inside your uterus, how, do you, how long is it until you bleed it out or you know you're pregnant? How long is that process? So- I went um, back nine days later for okay. a blood test, and then they okay. have you come back two days after that for another blood test to be sure your um, HCG levels are rising. And yours were? Yes. Yeah. Did and you? I did do a home test, even though I wasn't supposed to. Oh, you're such a bad student, <laughs> Em. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. So did you feel, I know that sounds like a weird question, but did you feel pregnant? That I, def- I definitely felt odd, but I also like all the medications you're taking. I mean, I was doing weeks and weeks of me- shots in my stomach and shots in my butt. And uh, like, I felt so not normal the whole time. So it was hard to be like, oh, this is because I'm pregnant. Or is it because I have all these hormones getting injected into my body? I feel like this is a really good moment where I want you to speak to all of the persons out there with CF that are worried that no one is going to do that for them. No one is going to love them or no one is going to want them. I know. But I think it's really important to share that message right now, what you did and were willing to do for love. So that it gives other persons with CF hope that someone will love them and this will not be a big deal. Yeah, because love is about more than CF. It's about more than what you have to do to have a family. Like have I wanted to do this with my husband because we love each other so much. And and he would say, I'm so sorry you have to go through this, but it wasn't I never thought I'm doing this because of Wesley, because of his cystic fibrosis. I'm doing this because we're starting a family together and I would do way harder things just just to do that for him and to do it for us. Yeah. I know that's a little teary. It makes me cry too, but (laughs) I just, it's really important that the, the persons in this world that are the, the least amount, right. And they feel they're alone, that they're not alone and that, Mm -hmm. that you're lovable no matter what your story is. Yeah. Right. And there's, everyone has a story. It doesn't matter if it's, I mean, it could be anything. And that's what I, we talk about this all the time too. Like his story is his story. It's not like it's so much worse than anybody else's. We all have something that we've had to overcome or go through. So. Yep. Every single one of us, my birth story audience knows my story. You know, I was very, very in love with my husband who let me know they were a transgender woman six years into our marriage. And you do what you do for love to make sure that your family is okay and safe. And that, like, I think that's a message I want to leave today too, is that, you know, we are all deserving of love. And there are lots of people, lots and lots of people ready to love you. So, Mm -hmm. you know, get on that dating train, no matter what your story is, (laughs) get out there. Okay. So tell me, Em, how did your pregnancy go? Um. So it started off a little bit rough. I had um, SCH, a subchorionic, I can never say it right, um, hematoma. Subchorionic hematoma. And so I bled pretty heavily um, from about eight weeks until 20 weeks. Um, And that was really hard. Um, Once I hit 12 weeks, they were pretty confident that everything was going to be okay. But before that, they they always told me at every ultrasound. We can't guarantee that this won't result in a miscarriage because I was bleeding so heavily and had huge blood clots. But did you I, have a I, blood transfusion? No, I didn't. Okay. Low iron? I do have, um, I did get low iron during pregnancy and I have since been diagnosed with anemia that I didn't okay. have before 
pregnancy. Yeah, the, the ferritin stores get very low when we're bleeding that yes. much. Okay, this is where I just need to pause for a minute and make sure our audience knows what in the heck we're talking <laughs> about, okay? So a subchorionic hematoma in pregnancy is where blood can pull between the uterus and the placenta, and it can cause these big, giant clots, you know, essentially. And it usually resolves by 20 weeks. So exactly when yours resolved, sometimes it doesn't resolve. Sometimes it does result in loss or miscarriage. Sometimes it results in accepted termination in order to save the mom's life because she's losing too much blood and she has to choose between continuing to lose too much blood and the baby that's inside of her. So it can be a really difficult and challenging diagnosis and super scary and also just not fun to bleed yeah. every day, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking eight weeks, M, is what you said. Eight weeks solid of like every <laughs> day wondering, I wonder if this is a miscarriage or if this is a whole bunch of blood from a subchorionic hematoma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was... <sighs> I'm yeah, sorry. It's very... It's okay. It's very... It was my... Like messed with my mind a lot because it would be like, oh, this has to be it. There's no way this isn't a miscarriage. And then I'd go for an ultrasound the next day and they'd be like, no. And not that I wanted that, but it was just like, oh my gosh, how am I going to know when it's, when it is a miscarriage or when it's not? It was very hard. I think any normal human being would have those feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So at 20 weeks, did it just kind of slowly dissipate and yeah. go away? Yeah. It just, I, I mean, I would have spotting a couple of times and then it just completely stopped and I never had any other bleeding. Oh my gosh, that makes me so happy for you, Em. Yeah. So 20 weeks to 40 weeks. This is the fun stuff. Yeah. This is typically when like the nausea subsides, you start yeah. feeling movement in your belly, your starts to grow and people know you're pregnant. Yeah. Talk to me about weeks 20 for 40. And I want to hear, like, did you start thinking about what type of birth you wanted to have and where you wanted to have it? So... I always knew I wanted to do, I always wanted like a home birth or a birth center. I definitely wanted a midwife and a doula. I, my background is in um, health education. So I've taught a lot of like women's health education um, classes and actually have traveled to Haiti um, and taught like family planning classes. And so I'm very like pro women's like rights and choice and like what or any other birthing person's rights and choices and what they want for themselves. And I always knew um, that's what I wanted. But I was very worried that because I did IVF, I would be not considered um, a low or not a high risk pregnancy. Um, but thankfully, the birth center I went to, while some do consider IVF high risk, um, they don't. So I was able to do a birth center birth, um, which I was very excited about. We actually hired our doula I think before I even had my confirmation ultrasound with the IVF clinic because I was so How did you find that. her? Um, actually, I don't think you probably remember this. I actually reached out to you to be my doula. And Ooh, you, yay. I don't yeah. remember that. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> no, okay. No, no, no. I know you're busy. Um, and you didn't service our area. And that I think that was before you and um, Colin started like your team together. Yeah. But you gave me um, Colin's information and that's how we got connected. So that makes me feel amazing. You guys, <laughs> I referred M to her doula and I didn't even yeah. know it. Yeah. Yay. Okay. So Colin was your doula. Yes. 
Okay. My, the birth story podcast listeners know Colin is my girl. She's my jam. She mm-hmm. took a 40 something year old who had to wake up in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. And I came to her and was like, I can't, I can't do this, dude. I have this company called Birth Story Media, and then I have doula clients, and I can't keep working at 2 a.m. So Colin works the night shift for me, and I work the day shift for her. It's amazing. So at this point, you were Colin's individual client because now our clients are together. Oh, this is really exciting. This is a fun little flip of the script for me. So you are going to be the birth center closest is about an hour outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Is that where you are at Natural Beginnings? Yes. Yep. Okay. Not sure if I was supposed to say the name of that place. I usually just say birth center, but whatever. Yeah. Everyone can figure that out. That's okay. Um, Let's just not say any providers' names. Perfect. Okay. okay. Cause since, since we're live. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, since we're live on here, let's just scratch the providers' names. Yeah. So you have a doula. Mm-hmm. You're going to be birthing at a birth center. Do you live mm-hmm. kind of closer to that area then? We're 50 minutes. Okay. From the birth Jeez. center. Yeah. Yeah. So am I. That's why I don't take yeah. births. <laughs> <laughs> one one every now in a blue mood, but usually yeah. why I don't. So, okay. So you were like, okay, you knew in the middle of your birthing time or labor, I'm going to have to drive an hour yes. to go. Why not a home birth? Um, so uh, we had talked about it, um, talked about it with Colin, talked about it with my husband. He is very, I think because of having cystic fibrosis and like being raised in like such a highly medical way like having to like go to doctors go to hospitals do all these medications he is very like confident in the hospital system and which is great but it's not what I wanted and so we compromised on um I wanted a home birth and he felt more comfortable with hospital so we compromised with the birth center okay (laughs) but I'm very I got it I got it I got it I think it was very I think it was the right choice for sure yeah okay well let's fast forward then I'm going to ask you the the most important question of the whole birth story podcast. The reason mm-hmm. people show up here. How did you know you were in labor? Um, my water broke. So it was obvious. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so first sign, water broke? Like you weren't even yeah. having any contractions? No contractions. How far along were you in your pregnancy? I was, I was exactly... 37 weeks, which was important because you can't have a birth center birth. So my water broke actually the night before I was 37 weeks. You are so lucky. I know. Everyone listening, full term, full gestational term. And when we are IVF clients, we know exactly that guest date is pretty mm-hmm. accurate versus yeah. if you conceive spontaneously, your sperm lives six days right? It has six long days inside your uterus to figure out if there's an egg there and try to penetrate it. So like a guest date to me is really wonky and means that word I can't say on a live show, but like doesn't really have have much weight or mean anything unless you're IVF, okay? Then you got a pretty clear window. 37 weeks is full term. Otherwise, we don't qualify. It's a um, considered preterm labor if you're 36 mm-hmm. weeks, six days or before. And in our area, that would require going to a hospital mm-hmm. for what you experienced was considered PPROM. So you were 36 and six, which is preterm, mm-hmm. premature rupture of the membranes. 
Okay. So you, you people might have just said prom, but if you are 36 yeah. and six, you're actually P prom, preterm. Okay. Okay. So your water breaks and you're like, whoa. Yeah. Wasn't expecting I that. <laughs> I didn't know because it wasn't, I mean, I, Colin had told me this multiple times that like when your water breaks, it's not necessarily going to be like in the middle of a store and this like huge gush. Like it's not like in the movies. And I thought I just peed my pants. And I, then I stood up and was like going to the bathroom and I was like, I can't still possibly be peeing. Like there's no way <laughs> this is still pee coming out of me. And that's when I figured it was my water not going to the Colin bathroom. Colin is such a good doula. Yeah. Mainstream media. It is not always, sometimes it is a big pop and a gush. Yeah. In fact, I was at a birth last week, right before I went, the night before I went into my surgery oh my and her, her name's, I'm going to do initial D her first initials D and she's hysterical and she's just like laying there and we're giggling about life or whatever. And all of a sudden she screams. She was comfortable with an epidural, I might say too. Mm -hmm. So she's comfortable with her epidural and we're chatting and all of a sudden she screams like the loudest scream. And I'm like, people come rushing in. We're like, what's going on here? And she's like, my water just broke. <laughs> and we're like, okay, now that was one of those movie moments, yeah. <laughs> right? But the rest of the world, it feels like you pee your pants and the yeah. pee just keeps coming. So that yeah. was more your story. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so did you call, what time of day was this? This was about 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. Okay. Like it, always. And so, it's always. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why being a doula is such a hard job, but amazing. Yeah. Like right yeah. as we're about to go to sleep, here's Colin about to go to sleep that night. And then here's M, like, ready to go to work? Yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. um, so because you were P-prom, but just by a couple hours, just by yeah. a couple hours, we could have fudged that a little bit, but we're just a couple yeah. hours for P-prom. Um, what was, was Colin your first phone call or your, or did you call the birth yeah. center first? So, no, I called Colin first because I still was not 100% convinced that's what it was. And because I ha wasn't <laughs> having any contractions. Um. And so I, I did call her and she, I don't think she was convinced it was my water at first. And she said, just put on a pad, like lay down, see what happens. And then I called her back like an hour later and I was like, I've had to change my underwear four times. And she was like, okay, it was your water. And so, Definitely. That, yeah. And then I called um, the birth center and told them. Okay. So what was the plan? Because I mean, as a doula, yeah. I can walk you through in my head what I think yeah. we would do. But tell me about what you and your doula and your birth team to decided to do for your birth at that point. So stay plan, home, go yeah. in. What'd you do? So I just stayed at home. That was the plan. Mm -hmm. um, stay at home, wait for contractions to basically start. Mm -hmm. um, when they started to start, if like start monitoring, I guess, not like sitting there timing every single one, but just like keeping an eye on things. Um, and then in the morning, I was going to call back the birth center. Okay. And that was the plan for the night and to go to sleep. That was okay. the plan. I'm yeah. so excited. <laughs> Let me just pause here, you guys. Did you hear him in a birth center or a home birth? Like everyone's chill. Your water breaking does not mean like Let's race to the hospital. Yeah. Like there is such a myth, right? Mm -hmm. Data suggests that when your water breaks like this, like it did with M, preterm, pre premature rupture of the membranes or just premature rupture, meaning your first sign of labor is your water breaking. 
data shows that within six to eight hours, you should start having cramping and contractions. Mm -hmm. You should still deliver within 24 to 36 hours usually. Okay. But like, we don't really expect anything to happen low and slow for six, eight, 12, 24 hours your body to get the message that the water is slowly leaking out in a a series of signals. God only knows what the mechanism of action of labor is. That's in the million dollar question. If there's (laughs) any OBGYN could figure that out, we would be zillionaires. I'll invest. (laughs) But like, since we don't know the mechanism of action, we, there's something, a series of events that's happening as that water's trickling. So I'm so thankful they told you that, Em, because I want everyone to hear that. Go to sleep. 10 o'clock at night, go to bed, go to sleep. What what happened? <laughs> so that's what they told you to do, yeah. but then what happened? I did not sleep. <laughs> I put on Parks and Rec and sat in bed and watched Parks and Rec while my husband slept next to me. Um, I think I was just, well, I was obviously, I was just so anxious for what was to come and I was so like in my brain I was like this, I'm not ready I was not prepared for this I have a whole list of things I have to do but also just like when is it going to start when what am I going to do next and so I just could not shut my brain off to go to sleep I wish I had I very much okay. wish I had gone to sleep but I did not did you call Colin for any advice or tips yeah. or did you yeah I did call um we called her a couple of times I didn't want to just because I knew I wasn't like that nothing was happening. I was trying to let her get her sleep. Um, but we, I did take like a bath, laid in the bath and relaxed and then um, did some different like stretches and different things um, to try to, you know, just calm down and relax. But she just kept saying, go to bed, close your eyes and go to bed. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the my contractions didn't start. I didn't start having like cramping contractions and still until like four or five in the morning. And they definitely were not consistent by any means. Yeah. But look at that. That was exactly like six to eight hours later. What data says. Yeah. So your textbook. Yeah. Right there. Okay. So they started coming um, early in the morning. Yeah. And then the birth center actually called me in the morning. And because I had just had my 37 week appointment, and they did my um, GBS test. The results had not come back yet. So they contacted me to see if I wanted to do antibiotics or not because I didn't have the results. Um, and that was up to me. And so I, they ended up having, because I wanted to, we ended up going into the birth center um, so they could check, start antibiotics and see how far along I was. Okay, now I'm going to fast forward. When the results came back, were you positive or negative? Negative. That's all right. I was just wondering. (laughs) You're usually negative. It's really um, more rare to be positive. But you were practicing proactive care rather than reactive care with the information that you had. So that's something, a choice that you made for your body. So that's good. But that means getting to the birth center and getting antibiotics started if you are group beta strep positive. Mm -hmm. Everybody can go research that on evidence-based birth. I love that website. (laughs) Evidence-based birth, all about group beta strep. Um, So when you got to the birth center, tell us what it's like. What does it feel like? 
So I, well, I got to the birth center and the midwife meets you out in the parking lot, which is really nice, walks you in. So we went into just an exam room so they could, so she could check how far along I was. Um, and in order to basically start being at the birth center, um, you have to be progressing um, in your labor. And I was only two centimeters and my contractions were still not consistent. So I was given the option to wait basically in the exam room or to go home and to be at home and see how things progressed. Um, mm, so even though it was only a one of those drive, sounds like a great option. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even though it was 50 minutes, we turned back around and went home. Um, did they administer antibiotics though while you did. were there? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And okay. she did, um, I can't remember what it's called. A test. To, to, uh, Non-stress like test. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Non-stress um, test. Just to check on your baby's fetal movements and that type of thing. Heartbeat. Yes. So we got back home. Um, I was given the midwife's brew to take um, because yeah. it was I wasn't really progressing. And because, like you said, you want to wait or you you can wait, but you don't want to wait too long. Um, so and because I was only two centimeters, they gave me that. So and they then just gave you the recipe for the midwife's the brew. Yes. OK. Yep. So we stopped so on the way home and got some. If anyone right now is like, what in the world is the midwife's brew? OK. It is in lots of the show notes on many episodes of the Birth Story podcast, but essentially it's two ounces of castor oil mm-hmm. mixed with lots of different things. So champagne, nectar, almond butter. Okay. That's the recipe I love. What did you mix it with, Em? Same thing. Same thing. Exactly okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was like, I think I probably got the recipe directly from yeah those midwives. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's a really good thing to do if you, it's a natural induction method. If you are not a VBAC and like M, if your provider is telling you to go yeah. home and drink castor oil, why not? You know? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know how fireside chat works if I get show notes yet. <laughs> since This is my first episode. But if I get show notes, I will go ahead and re-put the midwives brew in the show notes. Um, how did it taste and like how, at what first, was it like was to like, drink castor oil? At first I was like, this is amazing. But I think it was, <laughs> this sounds so silly because of the champagne and the like bubbles. I was like, oh my gosh, oh, I yeah. haven't had wine or champagne in 10 months and this is, tastes delicious. And then after like three sips, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like totally not. like an addict breaking their sobriety, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> the first sip you're like, yes. I don't know because I'm not sober, but I'm just yeah. guessing. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, but it's like thick and I can't say that I enjoyed it. Um, but within nope. like 30 or so minutes of being home, uh, my contraction started getting super intense and pretty consistent. Um, and so then we called Colin or, okay. and that's when we turned back around and went back to the birth okay. So you felt like you were moving into active labor versus yeah. your early, you know, early yeah. phases of labor. What time was that? That was around 1230. I think, okay. I think that's about what time we got back. Okay. So about 14 hours after your water ruptured, mm-hmm. you were having consistent, strong contractions mm-hmm. where it was time to call your doula. 
Yeah. That's really important, right? First-time birthing persons are often confused on how long their labor is going to last and like when do they call for help. So Mm -hmm. it sounds like, M, you called for help when contractions got kind of strong. Yeah. You know, and close together. Yeah. It was like, what did you do? Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I can't even interrupt on a live show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You first. I was just saying, once I like couldn't talk or couldn't, like, I felt more like I was like, couldn't handle them as well. That's when we were like, okay, maybe we should call Colin and head to the birth center. So 50 minute drive back. Yep. It was a little bit worse of a drive than the first drive. Can imagine. What did you do for comfort? Were you like in a sitting down in a seatbelt or were you like hands and knees, legs up? What were you doing? I was sitting in the front seat, but I was curled up and I was like holding on to the handlebar. And I just sat there with my eyes closed the whole drive. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. And then you made it home. Yeah. Do you know, it's like we only live in the moment, right? My only, I remember driving to the hospital, but I'm like, yes, not yesterday. I'm six days post-op. The drive home from the hospital after having my breasts reduced, Mm -hmm. every, I felt every pebble on the street. I was like, someone needs to pay the city to pave (laughs) their things. Like when you're having a contraction and you're in the car and there's Mm -hmm. any bump or jiggle, it's, it exacerbates it by like Mm -hmm. (laughs) 1000. And all the bad drivers. I was like, don't these people know I'm in labor? (laughs) Get out of the way. (laughs) Flashers on like horn, get out of my way. Okay. So you get back to the birth center and at this time, are they like, we accept you, Em, you're yeah. far enough along. Okay. Yeah. So they brought me, I was the only one there at the time in labor. So that I got my choice of room. So there was three rooms I could choose from. Um, so I got to go into the room and basically just got comfortable. Um, Colin wasn't there yet. So they checked me again. Um, and then she our midwife put on some essential oils, showed us how to like plug in our music. And then she just left, gave us a little button to press if we needed something. And then just kind of left us to ourselves, which was comfortable for me. I was much happier to just be with my you husband. You knew you were going to give birth there. Yeah. You had already arrived. And so it's okay. <laughs> just be alone. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say something about those vaginal exams because I'm not a big fan of them and my Mm -hmm. listeners know this, okay? But the birth center operates under specific um, laws and guidelines. So in order to birth at a birth center, they have to check your cervix every four hours in order to keep you there. So in our state, in North Carolina, if they were to check your cervix and you weren't making progress, whether the cervix be softer, come more um, like position from posterior to anterior mid-center, so kind of the cervix move forward, be softer, the head be lower, more cervical dilation. Like there's lots of different things that indicate progress, Mm -hmm. but um that kind of tripped me up a couple of times when I was at birth centers. At hospitals, you can refuse vaginal exams. At a birth center, to my understanding, you guys can write in if I'm totally wrong, but at the birth centers in my area, 
we're not able to refuse vaginal exams, even if your water's ruptured because of these laws and guidelines to even be able to birth at a birth center. So I wanted to make sure that I said that, like, if you're at a hospital and your water's broken, please don't get your cervix checked. (laughs) But if they make you, okay, well, they make you so you can have a birth center birth. So, Mm -hmm. so, um, so talk to me about like, where, where, where were you? How far along were you? At that point, I was still only three centimeters. Um, Girl, give yourself some credit. (laughs) That is a lot. Yeah. Three centimeters. You were at two. That's giant progress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I was three centimeters. I don't remember now. I have it all written down somewhere, like how close contractions were and things like that. But I was three centimeters, but I was very uncomfortable. Um, So for persons listening that are arriving at their place of birth and they're three centimeters and you are uncomfortable, what helped you? Because there's no epidural at a birth center. (laughs) So Um, I, biggest thing was just like positional changes, like not being in one spot for too long. Um, There was nothing that was like the most comfortable, but it was like, okay, I'd lay on the bed on my side for a little bit and then I'd get up and sit on the ball for a little bit and then I'd get up and sit on the toilet for a little bit or go in the shower and just the movement for me and knowing that I could go and get like get up and pace or do whatever was very helpful for me so like as soon as I started to get a little too uncomfortable I would just move somewhere else and that helped me okay what about water like water in the tub so I just I, know that there's big tubs there. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. I, it's funny because I feel like when people think like, oh, birth center, home birth, it's like assumed you'll labor in the tub or you'll give birth in the tub. And I remember before even my water breaking in, so people would ask me, oh, are you going to have a water birth? And I was like, I don't know. Like, we'll see. I have no idea because I've never given birth before. And so I think by the time they, they didn't check me again. Um, because it, from that point it just started moving really quickly. Um, or if they did, it was one more time. And by the time they put the tub up and started filling it with water, I was already oh, like about to start pushing. And so I got in the tub and I didn't like it. And I think that if maybe I had gone in it earlier and had like a chance to relax, but at that point my body was already like pushing on its own. And I started to panic because I couldn't get comfortable to like sit in the tub in the right way. Um, And so once I was in the tub, they checked the baby's heart rate. And I think because I was starting to panic a little bit, the baby's heart rate dropped. And so if you're the baby's heart rate drops, they have you get out of the tub. So which was fine with me because I didn't enjoy it. Um, But I got out of the tub and I laid I wanted to lay on the bed and I laid on the bed and I, it was like seven minutes later, our baby was born. So it was very quick. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So you experienced the fetal ejection reflex. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to the audience, like, what does, what was that like? What did that feel like? So I had heard the term and I knew it was a thing before, but I obviously didn't have never experienced it, didn't understand it. And I was having a contraction. I was laying in the bed and I was kind of like in and out of not consciousness, but in and out of focusing and being aware of what was going on. And all of a sudden my body just like 
bore down without me doing anything. And I just was like making these grunting sounds, but I wasn't purposely trying to push. And I didn't think anything of it. Like my husband said that he panicked. Like he was like, there's something wrong with her. (laughs) This isn't normal. (laughs) And in my mind, I was just like, okay, this is the next stage of what's happening, but I don't know what it is. And yeah, it's just so, it was such an insane feeling to know your body is completely in control without you telling it what to do or what it, it was a bizarre feeling, but a really cool feeling too. Very cool. Now, yeah. most people that I work with and that have an unmedicated birth, I'm, well, I'm not going to give it away. I'm just curious. Would you describe it as childbirth as painful? I, the contractions were painful. Actually, giving birth was not painful. Okay. That's what I would say. I love, so I loved giving birth. Like I, I would, I, as soon as it was over, I was like, I would do that over and over and over again. <laughs> like I would. I loved giving birth. Very cool. Well, it sounds like you had a great, if I could break it down, you had a great team. You had the right birthing location. You (laughs) had patients like, you know, it's not like race to the hospital and put Pitocin in your IV, right? Like it's just like take a nap, chill, eat something, come back in 14 hours when you're (laughs) having contractions, right? Like and then you were able to have free movement of your body to find what was comfortable mm-hmm. for you and make autonomous choices. You know, the one mm-hmm. thing we didn't hear from you was, except for your husband panicking when you were making yeah. noises, what role was he playing? What role was Wesley playing and how did he support you when you look back? What helped that he did? He literally ne- didn't leave my side the whole time. It was just hand and I'm we're both physical touch people so he like had his hand on my back had his hand on my face had his hand on my arm constantly touching me not even necessarily like saying anything but just knowing he was there for for me and the way our relationship is and the way we love each other it was like the most perfect thing he could have done um he and he will admit this too like the like counter pressure things like that he had no idea he tried and I was like you're not strong enough you're not doing it good enough um, but I just needed to know he was there and he did not leave my side or stop touching me the whole time. And for me, that was what I needed. So, yeah. Did you talk about that in advance or is that just something that you knew about each other from being partnered for so long? We never really talked about it, about what his role would be besides like cutting the umbilical cord. We never, but he even laid in bed next to me as I, as she came out, which was just like, so cool that he was like curled up next to me. (laughs) It was just incredible. Oxytocin flowing. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Were you um, interested in breastfeeding or chest feeding? So we did try um, to latch at the birth center. I did want to, I was pretty convinced in my brain that that was exactly what we were going to do. But she she was really small. She was five pounds, four ounces. Um, okay. And they were a little bit concerned about weight, um, blood sugar levels, things like that. And so we tried. Um, she never latched at the birth center. We went home four hours after she was born and she never latched at home. And we went and saw a lactation consultant the next day and tried. Then I did pumping. We tried for a couple of weeks. Um but in the end, it was just way better for both of us to 
stop trying that <laughs> and to switch over <laughs> to formula <laughs> was yes. mentally Did very hard. Did she take the bottle? Was she able to yeah. take a bottle? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I asked this question because it's really important that we share all of our stories and all of our journeys. Like yeah. feeding our babies is important. How we feed them is less important. Yeah. Right? But taking care, making sure our babies are fed and that our minds and our bodies as the birthing person are taking care of too is really important. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that part of your yeah. story. Um, then the last question, I have two more questions. One is about your okay. placenta. Did you do anything with your placenta? Yeah, we had it encapsulated. Okay. So um, there's a guide to encapsulation, you guys, at birthstory.com. Since especially I'm recording live and people may listen to this, like we don't eat raw placenta. <laughs> That's not a thing. Okay. It's like dehydrated, right? It's very, yeah. um, you know, it's very Ruth Chris Steakhouse, really. I mean, it's not like so primal, yeah. but you did, encaps you did encapsulate it. Yeah. Put it into pills, like little vitamins and take mm -hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, and then for everyone out there, we always end on, um, what is your favorite baby or mommy product that you absolutely love? So if, if someone's brand new pregnant and they're like mm -hmm. making their registry, what's the one thing or the two things that you would say, don't miss out on this? We got the Duna car seat stroller um, when she when our daughter was a couple months old. And that has been a game changer in traveling because it just folds up um, from stroller to car seat. And we travel a lot. So she's flown like seven times and she's 10 months old. And so we, it's been super convenient. The other thing is a nail file instead of nail clippers. Yeah. Because I cut her I just, nails the first time I tried and it was a little bit traumatic. <laughs> was that the first time you saw her, her blood? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I will, and we went to the chiropractor the next day and I, my mom was like, no one's going to notice. And the first thing the chiropractor said was, oh, did you accidentally cut her finger? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so I don't think we ever forget the first time that we see our children's blood, especially when it's our fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, well, Em, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the Birth Story podcast and to be my very first guest live on Fireside. This is really exciting. Before we go, is there anything else that we forgot to say or that you want to make sure you share with the audience? I don't think so. I just thank you so much for having me. This was really fun to talk about and yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you putting a spotlight on the CF community and on the birth center community, and especially on parents who are having struggles with their feeding journeys too. We learned an awful lot from you today, and it was really special to have you be my first guest on this platform. I'm so thankful. And I would just like to say, you're welcome for everyone who's watching live for having the opportunity to see me in my nightgown in my closet, <laughs> recovering from my mommy makeover. You know, can't just can't always be this perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, I love it. I hope that you will reach out to Colin and I if you become pregnant again in the future with one of those other three embryos that are waiting for you. Um, I would love to be your doula alongside Colin too. So hopefully we'll see you in the future. Yeah, definitely. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. 
And before you go, I would love to see you in class at Birth Story Academy. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like. 